And it's pretty nerve wracking when you devote your entire life to something and not really find any success. And it's very easy to tell yourself that you should quit and give up because I'm a developer. I can get a job as a software engineer. I could go work at Google or Facebook or Amazon or something and get a great salary and live a great life without working nearly as hard as I worked during the bulk of my 20s trying to start my own thing. And so by the time I was you know, 27, 28, I had spent six years doing this and didn't have very much to show for it. I was pretty, I don't want to say upset with myself, but just questioning, you know, is this the path that I should have gone down? You know, if it's not, should I continue going down this path in the future to try to make something work? My name is Cortland Allen, and I'm the creator of ND Hackers. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Cortland Allen found his startup sweet spot by building the largest community of indie hackers around. All this and more on Code Story. Cortland Allen grew up totally opposite of his twin brother, Channing, but influenced by him nevertheless. His family was rooted in entrepreneurship, and as such, Cortland was heavily inspired to build and run his own thing. After going through Y Combinator and trying out different startups, he landed on the idea for Indie Hackers, and it checked all the boxes for what he wanted to work on. He spent three weeks and built a community for creators who want to find freedom in making a living for themselves online. Indie Hackers is a community of mostly developers and creators who want to make a living for themselves online. And their sort of primary driving factor is freedom. They want the freedom to work from wherever they want. They want the creative freedom to work on whatever they want. They want the financial independence to be able to control their own destiny without having a boss or any particular working hours, to be able to work with whoever they want to hire and work alongside of. They just want to run their own business because of the freedom that it grants them in almost every aspect of their lives. And Indie Hackers is an online and in-person community nowadays where these founders can basically come together, swap ideas, give each other tips and advice and feedback and share each other's stories. I started Indie Hackers because I wanted to be an Indie Hacker myself. I had, for the better part of a decade, dreamed of building my own business after I got out of college and I never quite found the success that I was looking for. So after I graduated from college, I applied to Y Combinator, I didn't get in. I worked on my own startup for another year, applied to Y Combinator again, which is an accelerator that basically funds startups, and I did get in. And even then, you know, my startup that had funding, that had a co-founder, that was doing everything sort of by the book, didn't ever succeed to the point where I felt happy doing it. I felt like, you know, this is what I really wanted to accomplish. It could never really pay for my lifestyle. It never was what you would call a success. And for years I worked on it and I worked on different companies and I worked on different side projects and I just never quite got to the point where I had built a business that I was proud of and that I could say that you know, I really truly accomplished my goal. And it's pretty nerve wracking when you devote your entire life to something. I mean, this is what I was doing like as my full-time job basically and, and working weekends and nights as well and not really finding success. And it's very easy to tell yourself that you should quit and give up because I'm a developer. I can get a job as a software engineer. I could go work at Google or Facebook or Amazon or something and get a great salary and live a great life without working nearly as hard as I worked during you know, the bulk of my 20s trying to start my own thing. And so by the time I was you know, 27, 28, I had spent six years doing this and didn't have very much to show for it. I was pretty, I don't wanna say upset with myself, but just questioning, you know, is this the path that I should have gone down 
And, you know, if it's not, should I continue going down this path in the future to try to make something work? What it came down to for me was the fact that ultimately I'm an indie hacker at heart. I really value my freedom. I really value the ability to work on whatever I want to. And I just am constitutionally unemployable. Like I just, when I think about getting a job, I think that almost necessarily any job that I would have wouldn't take advantage of my full skill set, wouldn't really utilize me to my fullest. And I wouldn't really love it there and eventually would want to quit and do my own thing. And so I think having that sort of amount of clarity about who I am and what I wanted out of my life and my career made it easier for me to decide to just keep going and keep starting my own companies, whether they work out or not. It's just something that I have to do. It's something that I would need to do. And I I don't think I would ever regret doing it, even if it didn't work out. With that mindset, I decided to take on, you know, another project in this case, which ended up being Indie Hackers. And I was very systematic about it. In the past, I had been a lot more intuitive. I had basically worked on things because I was excited about them or I thought that they might work. But I never really sat down and thought about all the different things that I learned over my entire career of being a founder and all the different mistakes that I had made and really tried to systematically put it on paper into a list and literally make sure that whatever idea I worked on checked all the right boxes. And that's what I did different with Andy Hackers. They just had things on there like, I only want to work on something that I can build in a few weeks. I only want to work on something that doesn't require a lot of code because I know that I'm prone to coding for eight months or a year, not picking up my head and doing sales and marketing and all the other things that are important for a successful business. I only want to work on something where I can describe it to my friends and family in plain English and they understand what I'm working on so that they can support me and actually you know, care about what I'm doing. It's just like a list of 10 things. And I spent three days after that, just brainstorming idea after idea, trying to figure out what I could work on and not settling for anything that seemed good at first, but instead running it through my checklist and making sure it checked all the right boxes. And at the end of that process, I had four or five different ideas that I was really excited about, but Andy Hackers was by far the best one that scored the highest on that rubric. And so I started it. And that was about three and a half years ago in the summer of 2016. Tell me about the MVP. So this was a a big item on my checklist. I didn't want to work on anything that was going to take very long to create. And in part, that's because at the time I had quit contracting. I'd always worked as a contractor to sort of support myself doing consulting on the side of starting these companies. But I had quit and taken pretty much a year off, not because I wanted to take an exact year off, but because I had a year of runway in my bank account before I was going to run out of money and I needed to essentially get another job. By the time I came up with the idea for Andy Hackers and picked that idea, I only had like six months of runway left in my bank account. So this is the end of July, 2016. I was gonna be out of money around December or January of 2017. The initial idea was basically, it was just gonna be a blog. I was going to interview founders. I was going to ask them how they came up with their ideas, how much money they were making, how they found their first customers, all the different challenges and hurdles that you know, aspiring founders like myself faced. I would try to get the truth and the behind the scenes information out of a bunch of other founders who were actually doing it. And a blog doesn't take that long to build. And so that, you know, checked that box on my list. And I think it took three weeks from the time I came up with the idea from Indie Hackers to the time that I actually launched it. I had my first 10 interviews. I built a blogging software from scratch using Ember.js, which is kind of a front-end JavaScript framework similar, similar to Angular or React and using Firebase for the database and authentication, which is just, you know, 
a basic database that's kind of NoSQL and in real time. Three weeks to get to get from idea to launch, and that was by far the fastest I'd ever built and launched anything. Everything else I had ever worked on took months of working kind of in secrecy by myself, not talking to anybody and just heads down coding just to get to like the very prototypical bare minimum version. What decisions and trade-offs did you have to make while you were building that MVP and how'd you cope with those? Out of all the ideas on my list that I wanted to work on, Indie Hackers was the one that required the least amount of code. Everything else I was excited about probably would have taken two or three months of code at minimum and that's being optimistic. Realistically, I always underestimate how long it would take and those would take you know, six to 12 months in reality. And so with Indie Hackers, it was a blog. I could have just built nothing at all and posted my interviews on Medium or uh, hosted a WordPress site or anything else that was just super easy. But instead, I think the big trade-off for me that I was making internally was, well, if I'm going to build something that doesn't require any code, I will grant myself the one sort of indulgence that I will build my own blogging software from scratch just because I'm a developer and it's fun and I would like to have control over it. And so that was a trade-off I made. I, I would work on something that was super not code intensive as long as I was allowed to build things from scratch and just scratch my own itch and just, just have fun doing something. Because I think if you start your own business, your own company, you should actually enjoy what you're doing so long as it doesn't get in the way of you actually succeeding. A quick thank you to one of today's sponsors, Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing sponsorship opportunities, such as host-read ads, interview segments, discussions, and more. With Podcorn, there's no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you every step of the way to ensure you are protected and compensated for the work you do with brands. Personally, I've been waiting for the launch of Podcorn for some time. My experience using the platform has been super pleasant. I've been in contact with numerous sponsors, sent lots of proposals, been assigned campaigns, and even gotten to know a few new folks through the whole process. If you are a podcaster or someone looking to promote your product or service, I highly recommend you look into the Podcorn platform. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more or go to podcorn.com slash podcasters to get started. That's P-O-D-C-O-R-N dot com slash podcasters. Some of the more technical trade-offs I made were that I wanted to use Ember.js, which was a front-end framework for building specifically single-page web applications. Ember's very opinionated about that. It's got a router built in. It's got the component layer built in. It's got sort of a data layer for handling the objects that you get back from your database. It's kind of all wrapped into one. It's not a bunch of separate components like something like React would have you do. And I wanted to do that because I already knew Ember. I liked it. I liked the philosophy. And I knew that I wanted Indie Hackers to be a single-page website. In the prevailing months, I, I think the website did so well and it got so much traffic that I wasn't quite prepared for it. And it also took a different direction where nowadays Indie Hackers is much more of a community and less of just kind of a static blog. And that means a lot of the user interface is updating on a regular basis and people are upvoting things, leaving comments and things need to change, which has led to me in some, in some instances regretting choosing the particular tech stack that I chose. But it's really hard to predict that stuff when you first started a new project. Like you don't really know how big things are going to be and premature optimization or you're predicting all this success and engineering for a future world which might not even come to pass is usually the wrong approach. So in hindsight, I wish I had chosen something different, but probably at the time I was making the right decisions, at least from my perspective. So how has the product progressed since that point? How have you matured the product? 
the initial version of Indie Hackers was literally just a blog. It didn't really look like a blog. You would go to the website. It was all blue. Blogs are typically white because they're more readable, but I, I wanted it to be blue so it would stand out. And instead of having like these articles with titles, you just saw this grid of company names and revenue numbers. So it didn't look like a blog, but it really was just a blog with kind of a unique design. And I had a page on there that said forum, but it was completely empty because I wasn't sure I was going to build any sort of community forum or software. And I just wanted to see if people would use it. And so we clicked forum, it would say literally, hey, the Indie Hackers forum is something I'm considering building. If you're interested in using it, put your email address here. And it turned out that after the first month or two of running Indie Hackers, a ton of people were entering their email address because they wanted to use the forum. And so eventually I got to work. And this is another you know, instance of me indulging and saying, I'm not going to use any off the shelf form software. I'm not going to use discourse. I'm going to build my own form software from scratch and just allow myself really the fun and the process of, of coding my, my own form software from scratch. So I did. It took me about eight days to build bare bones working forum software where you can make a post and reply to comments and have threaded comments and upvote each other and all sorts of things. And that was pretty empty for the first few months. It was mostly just me making fake accounts, talking to myself, trying to get the conversation started. Because obviously, <laughs> if you build any sort of social form software, in the beginning, nobody's there. And it's not valuable for anybody if nobody's there. But eventually, other people would join. And after a few weeks, there'd be like one person there who's talking to one of my accounts. And I remember the first time I saw two people talking to each other. That was a, a big milestone. And I just kept at it for months. And eventually the forum became a very thriving part of the Indie Hackers community. And today it's the homepage. It's no longer buried on some backlink. If you go to IndieHackers.com, you see right there a ton of people who are helping each other build their websites, who are asking questions about how to get started, how to come up with ideas, to get feedback on their landing pages, etc. And almost all the coding I do nowadays is meant to support Indie Hackers, the community forum. It's almost like a social network nowadays where you create your own profile and you can follow other people and see what they're doing and even join groups. So it's, it's evolved quite a lot from its early days as merely just a blog. How do you go about building your roadmap? How do you figure out what's the next best thing to build in Indie Hackers? It really depends on the needs of Indie Hackers as a business and a community. So early on when I was just doing blog posts, one of the biggest issues was that 100% of this website depends on me and the effort that I'm putting in. If I stop putting out blog posts, Indie Hackers is dead. It's no longer valuable. People have read all the interviews that I've already done and that's a wrap. And so I felt a pretty strong need to build something that could be bigger than me that would power itself without my own direct input and who better to help other indie hackers than the indie hackers themselves. And so essentially the idea for a forum was a direct result of the fact that I knew I wanted to scale this beyond something that I could do myself. And I think that's kind of how the roadmap has progressed ever since then. You know, what is my number one problem? What is the next step that I'd like to get to? Okay, well then what's the best feature or solution that could help solve that particular problem? And this is something I think a lot of founders and developers in general who are working on projects underestimate, which is that you can get to a pretty remarkable place. You can build something big or expansive or interesting by taking one small step at a time rather than having to start at the end. There's absolutely no way I could have ever built Indie Hackers into a, a big, vibrant community if I just from day one started by trying to make a community because no one had any reason to be there. But because I started with the blog posts, that drew in a lot of traffic. And then that traffic signed up to my newsletter because they wanted to read more of these interviews. And that newsletter was crucial to me growing the forum because I could send out these forum posts in the newsletter and get people trickling in and eventually talking to each other. And now that the forum is here, I can divide it into groups. 
because it's kind of people powered and people are helping each other. Now there's different interest groups, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like one foot after the other, every step gives me sort of the advantage that I need to be able to build something a little bit more ambitious, a little bit further along on the roadmap. And that's almost always determined by where do I want to go next? And what is the biggest problem that's, that's facing me? And of course, there's like an endless list of problems. It's never going to be perfect. Software is almost never done. Even if the indie hackers groups all work out and it grows, I'm going to be thinking about how to take indie hackers to the next level. How do I make it bigger? How do I make it reach more people? How do I make it more impactful? And to some degree, like those answers are, it's hard to know where to focus. But uh, one of the things I love doing is just surveying the community. It's very fun to build software and you have thousands of people using it every day. And you know that whatever feature you build, people are going to test drive it and, and try it out. And so I can try little projects and little experiments and literally just email a few hundred people and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or, hey, what's your biggest problem or struggle as a founder? And they could tell me and then I can sit around thinking for a few weeks about what kind of feature could best solve that problem. So it's a combination of whatever I need next, plus whatever I think the community is struggling with and, and the intersection of how I could help with that. So how did you build your team? How did you go about finding the winning horses to join you at Indie Hackers? At first, it was just me by myself. And I've built companies with others before, but for whatever reason, it's, it's just never worked out. I've had some good co-founders who I've really jived with, some partners who I really worked well together with. But ultimately, it's tough sometimes to partner up with other people because you have differences in opinions and you have different goals and different objectives. And it's kind of like being a parent. You know, ideally, if you're a parent with somebody, you know them well and you share the same aspirations and dreams for your, your children. Ideally, if you partner up with somebody to work on a, a project or a company, that project or company is like your child and you guys have to have the same vision for where it wants to go. And so with Indie Hackers, I decided I was going to do it by myself, which meant that I wouldn't really have to convince anybody else of what I wanted to do. It would be entirely my brainchild. But obviously, the downside is that I have to do all the work which is why I think it helped to start small, keep it as something that was very manageable that one person could do, just like a blog at first, and then incrementally build it up. But since then, I've, I've gradually expanded the team. So the very first person that I ever brought on to work with me on Eddie Hackers is my twin brother, Channing. About eight months after I launched Indie Hackers, I saw that the revenue from the site was, was growing enough to the point where it could support me as an individual. I live in San Francisco. It's pretty expensive there. Rent is not cheap. But Andy Hackers is making something like $7,000, $8,000 a month. And that was enough for rent and bills and utilities. And I was so excited. I immediately reached out to my brother, who I'd worked with together in the past on various projects, and said, hey, this Andy Hackers thing is really working out. Do you want to help me with it? And the great thing about working with a sibling is that you have decades of conflict resolution behind you. Like my brother and I have been in thousands of arguments. We've never stopped talking to each other. We've never not been able to get past something. And so I know this is a safe person to come and help me run my business because I just know that we can get through pretty much anything. And I've seen this time and time again. For example, the co-founders of Stripe, Patrick and John, are also brothers. And I've interviewed probably half a dozen sibling pairs on the Indie Hackers podcast about how they started a company together. And so my brother, who's also a web developer, he's also a writer and a novelist, has taken charge of like a lot of the content production side of Indie Hackers and helped me run the business. Since then, we've also hired a few people to help and contractor roles. So we've got some people that we actually hired temporarily as contractors from Upwork who were excellent at what they did. And now they work with us in a more semi-permanent role. Rosie Sherry, our community manager, was actually one of the first people that I interviewed for Indie Hackers. And she started her own community and bootstrapped it 
to over a million dollars in revenue. It's, it's called the Ministry of Testing and it's a community of software testers. But she recently joined the team and she's helping us run the community as well. And our podcast editing is taken care of by a guy named Bradley Denham. And I believe you know him. And the story behind how he joined is pretty funny. I mean, he basically proved that he was the right person for the job. When I first started the Indianapolis podcast in early 2017, I wanted to do everything myself. I was kind of a control freak. I was like, I want to find the guests and interview them and edit it and release it and deploy and do all that by myself. So I was. So Bradley reached out and said, hey, are you looking for help to edit your podcast? And I said, you know what? I've got it. I'm editing it myself. I want to learn how to do this. And, you know, thank you for the offer, but I'm good. Another week or two passed and he emailed me again. He said, hey, I think I could really help you save time. I could do a better job editing. You know, I've got this much experience. Would you consider hiring me? And I had basically the same response. Like, you know, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the offer. I hear what you're saying and I don't doubt it's true, but, you know, I really want to do this myself. And I think I was just being a little bit narrow-minded. You know, I just wanted to do it myself. I didn't want to go through the trouble of trying to hire someone and figure out how to do that. And then a third week came and I got an email from Bradley and it was just two audio recordings. And one of them was like your version and the other one said my version. And I listened and he had edited the Indie Hackers podcast and done just so much better of a job than I had done that it was impossible for me not to hire him and say, okay, this is your job from now on. You're making the show sound way better than I could. So uh, he's been editing the podcast for two and a half years now. And that's uh, kind of a good summary of, of the types of people who are working with me on Indie Hackers. That's awesome. Sounds like you got a killer team. It's really great to have people working alongside you. And something that I didn't quite realize when I first started was how much more efficient and impactful you can be when you have good people working with you, especially as a software engineer. Like I had, I'd never really hired anyone before. I'd always been kind of solo. I'd always worked on my own projects. And I was a little bit scared of that whole process of working with others and outsourcing and trusting them to do things. But almost everybody who's done anything really impactful or significant has had help. And even if they were the people who ended up getting all the credit and all the glory, really there's a team behind them of, of excellent people who are doing a great job. And so it's something I've tried to embrace more and more as I've run Indie Hackers and as I've interviewed other founders who've come to the same realization and, and tried to build good teams for themselves as well. How did you factor in scalability when you're building Indie Hackers, either in the beginning or as you progressed, as you know you started to get some major traction? How, where did scalability come in for you? It was not at all a factor when I first built Indie Hackers. I didn't think about it at all. I assumed that it was going to grow pretty steadily and slowly over time and that I could just worry about it when it happened, which kind of ended up being the case, except right out of the gate, it was like 100,000 people came to the website in the first week. After that, it grew slowly and steadily, but like right out of the gate, it was huge. And luckily the website didn't fall over, it didn't crash early on, but I've had to make some changes based on how the website has progressed since then. So to get in some of the more technical uh, specifics, one of the biggest things I did early on was I added a caching layer to Indie Hackers. So Indie Hackers was just a blog. It was just static content. You come, you read what people said, maybe you sign up for the newsletter and that was it. And so I threw Indie Hackers behind a CDN Everything was on AWS in those days, so I think I was using CloudFront. And it just basically meant that no matter where you were in the world, your web browser would connect to the closest server that was serving Indie Hackers on Amazon CDN, and it would just give you the static response, and you wouldn't even hit my server, which was great, because then I didn't have to worry about things crashing. After that, I added the forum, which is far more dynamic. As I mentioned earlier, people are uploading things, people are leaving comments. And in that situation, you don't really want a cast version of the forum. You don't want to load the forum and see what it looked like yesterday. You want to load the forum and see what it looked like a minute ago or a second ago. So you want the most updated version. 
And that's something that I didn't really account for when I first built Indie Hackers. And I was eventually going to have such a dynamic website that needed to be updated often. And I think it's particularly challenging to do when you have a single page web app that's server-side rendered like I did. So I'm using Ember Fastboot, which is just basically the server-side rendering application for Ember. It runs on a Node.js app using Express. And basically, when your request hits the server, Node will basically spin up an instance of the Ember app on the server, take a snapshot of what the generated HTML looks like, and then return that to your browser. And that's kind of an expensive process. And so if you have thousands of people doing that, then it could easily overwhelm the server. So the first thing I did was I put the server on Amazon Elastic Beanstalk which has auto-scaling built in. And so you configure a few parameters and it'll detect when your server is you know, under experiencing lots of load and add more servers that can handle more of these requests in parallel. But even that wasn't really enough. Sometimes the auto-scaling would take too long to kick in, so the site would be down for a little bit. Uh, it was a little bit confusing to just have the site running on multiple servers. Deploys were a little bit more complex then if you had your software running on multiple servers. So I iterated with a bunch of different things. At one point, it made the site completely static and didn't do any server-side rendering. In that situation, it's very easy to serve your site into scale because everybody gets back the same HTML file. They can just cache that, throw that behind a CDN. But the downside is, without server-side rendering, what everybody gets is basically a blank page. And that blank page will just load for a while before the JavaScript app boots up on their machine. And I can tell you, if people click a link on social media or on Google to an article they want to read. And what they get is a blank loading screen for a few seconds. They click away. That's not what they want to see. They want the article right now. And if they see a loading screen, they're going to be reminded that they're distracted from work or something and just close the tab. So a sort of a stopgap measure, what I did was I took a page out of Balsamic's playbook. Balsamic is an app by this guy, Peldy. Uh, it's been around forever. And he had such a clever way of dealing with user complaints while his app loaded, which is that he showed a very relevant inspirational quote on his loading screen before the app would boot up. So I did the same thing for Andy Hackers. I would take a quote from one of my interviews. I would try to make it something useful and inspirational. And I would also show the interviewee's name and their business and their revenue numbers and the loading screen. Instantaneously, like all the complaints I would get about the website speed would go, went from, hey, this is loading too slow. Can you make it load faster? To, hey, this is actually loading too quickly. I didn't have time to read the quote. Can you slow <laughs> the website down? So that was a good stopgap measure while I worked on a bunch of other things. And then eventually I said, you know what? I really want to tackle this problem properly. I want indie hackers to load quickly and people to get straight to the content that they want. So what I ended up doing is creating a cron job that runs periodically on my server. I think it's set to run like every 30 seconds. And what that cron job does is it actually pings the server-side rendering and generates the HTML for the homepage and the form. And then it saves that HTML file on the server. And so that's constantly updating the HTML for the homepage. And if you request it as a user, what you get is that updated HTML file, which is just a static file. And so instead of getting a static file that has a loading screen, you're getting a static file that has a very recent snapshot of the homepage. So technically the homepage is always about 30 seconds out of date when you access Indie Hackers, but it allows you to go straight to the website, see what's going on, not be you know a day out of date. And then the app boots up and loads the most recent version rather than having to wait around and see a loading screen. So that's what I'm doing right now. It's, it's kind of one of the challenges of having a small development team. Right now I'm the only developer working on Indie Hackers. And so I've got to wear different hats, juggle between doing marketing stuff and going to meetings and improving the website and scaling things and producing the podcast. but. I'm sure there is a lot more scalability 
sort of low-hanging fruit that I can tackle in the future and a lot more I can do with caching and cache and validation that can make the website faster on other pages, not just the homepage. That's awesome. Sounds like you've done a lot already, though, to make the the pages faster and cache interestingly. And it's fun to wear those multiple hats on a startup uh, (laughs) and fight the scalability issues. You have to. You have to. There's no choice. You're You're the founder, the only person doing anything. So until you grow your team, it's all up to you and you have to figure out how to prioritize what's urgent and what's not. That's right. So as you step out you know, on the balcony, you look across indie hackers and the team and, and the community that is there, the rich community of indie hackers. What are you most proud of? What I'm most proud of is how much people are able to help each other. When I started Indie Hackers, I had a very, some might say selfish mission for it as a project. I wanted to help myself. The entire point of Indie Hackers is really, I want some personal freedom. I don't want to have to go back to getting a job. I want to support my own lifestyle. But once you get that locked in as a founder, your, your missions and your, your priorities start to change. And for me, you know, the biggest change came when I joined Stripe. About nine months after I started Indie Hackers, it was acquired by Stripe, where I still work on it today. Financially, I, didn't, I wasn't worried anymore. You know, I no longer had any sort of imperative to like, how do I pay my rent? And it became uh, much more about, well, how do I help Indie Hackers do what it does best and help founders and inspire founders to get started? And the cool thing is that because it's a community and because it's a podcast where I'm interviewing people, it's, it's never really me directly helping anybody. Like I'm not dispensing a bunch of advice and telling people how to start their companies. Rather, I'm just providing sort of a stage where other founders can come on and share their own story and their own advice and their own experiences, and they can help each other. It's the same thing with the community forum. I'm rarely posting on the community forum nowadays, but there's thousands of posts every week from founders who are helping each other. It's almost beyond belief to see what can happen. I've started to have a lot of people on the podcast recently who themselves were just fledgling indie hackers on the forum asking how they could get started. They're podcast listeners a year ago or two years ago. And now they're running these businesses that are making $20,000 or $50,000 or $100,000 a month in revenue and living the dream that they're aspiring to because they heard another episode of the podcast that really lit a fire under them or they got you know just the right amount of help on the forum. And so I think the thing that I'm the most proud of is just how cool and, and actually impactful it is to see people helping each other and, and really learning that inspiration is not just a buzzword, that people really do make life-changing decisions that alter the entire course of their career and their life because they heard a story about what somebody else did. That's amazing. I love that. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made along the process and how did you respond to it? I've made dozens of mistakes running any hackers. Probably the, the most unforgivable mistakes are related to code, specifically violating the principles that helped indie hackers become a success in the first place. So I was very focused on building something that would be quick to build, testing things out, not committing too much into building a ton of software in the beginning before I launched indie hackers. But since launching and since having things work out, a lot of that external pressure is removed. And you kind of feel like, oh, I, you know, the website's working. I can do whatever I want. And I've had a few of these slog projects where I'm like, this will just take a couple months and it takes like five months of me coding and the rest of the community is not getting better. Nobody sees any improvements because I've taken on this just absolute monster of a project that I really should have taken the time in the beginning to break down and think about how I can break it into bite-sized pieces, each one of which is useful and can contribute and I can release instantly. So people constantly see a steady stream of updates and so I can, I guess, really tell if I'm going in the right direction before I've committed to months of coding. A good example of that would be the directory of products on Indie Hackers. 
If you run a product or a business, you can go to ndhackers.com slash products and create a page for your product. You can share your revenue numbers if you want. You have a whole timeline there where you can post milestones and updates about what you've done. And I was so excited to build this because I just felt like it was necessary and really everybody on the, on the forum had something they were working on, but they had no place to share it on Indie Hackers. And so I just absentmindedly jumped into this. And this is a couple of years ago. And it just took forever to build this. I over-designed it. I made it look really good. It's like, it's very nice, but it was, I was focused on the wrong things. And then after I was done with it and people made these product pages, they had no real reason to use it because you would make all these posts on your timeline and then nobody would ever come and like those posts. They would never use them and there's just no visibility into them. And I hadn't even thought about that part of the equation. Luckily, I was able to sort of rectify that years later by building what we now call the Milestones Leaderboard. So any update that anybody posts to their product timeline gets put in that day's leaderboard for the top milestones. And these are almost always celebratory things. Like I made my first dollar in revenue, or I just came up with my idea, or my company just got acquired, or we just released this cool feature and here's what we learned. People love those milestones. And as a result, they upvote them and ask each other questions about how'd you do that? Or how can I do the same thing? And finally, the product pages have been sort of brought into the fold of the rest of the website. But it took me a while of making mistakes of that kind before I really stuck to my guns and said, I'm never working on anything that's gonna take me longer than a few days or most a week to build. So tell me what the future looks like for the product and for your team. The future for Indie Hackers is is mostly about growth. I think Indie Hackers as a community is in a great place. We survey people who use Indie Hackers and a pretty decent percentage of people say like, hey, I would never have started my company if it wasn't for a story that I read on Indie Hackers or a podcast episode that I heard on Indie Hackers. It really convinced me that I can do this. I have what it takes and my ideas are actually better than I thought they are. And so I think that's great. And in terms of how helpful Indie Hackers is, that's also great. People get a lot of help on the forum. And so the question now isn't so much, how do we make Indie Hackers better? But it's it's how do we bring this to more people? If, if we think this is truly inspiring and if it's really helpful to founders and that, you know, they don't have to feel lonely going through their journey, like nobody understands them, but they have a whole community online, like how do we get more people in the community? And I think that's a huge challenge because most websites that grow end up losing their initial appeal. You know, there's something about the initial group of people who helped them get to where they are that they turn a blind eye to and they really alienate their initial users. And so for me, the challenge is how do I make any hackers bigger and reach more people without alienating people and making them feel like we're getting away from our original goal? The answer that I have sort of arrived at, and it's too early to say that it's it's the right answer, but it's what we're trying, is to basically break up the community into smaller groups. And so I don't know if anyone listening is a fan of Reddit, but Reddit initially was kind of just one forum. And now today, Reddit is many tens or hundreds of thousands of subreddits, these smaller communities that all feed into one bigger community. And I'd like for any hackers to be the same. There are a ton of founders who have very specific interests. For example, there are founders of e-commerce businesses. There are founders who are selling courses. There are founders who are making mobile apps. There's founders who's making, who are making games, founders who are making SaaS software and just hundreds of different things that founders are working on. And so we're creating groups within the community. So founders who have particular interests and skill sets can actually meet other founders and have more in-depth specific conversations geared around these things than they could in just sort of the general indie hackers forum. And so it's early days. Each one of these groups we've created so far is it's like its own tiny community that we have to nurture and get off the ground. But hopefully a year from now, we will have thousands of these communities and many of them will be flourishing and we'll be reaching more people who never would have discovered indie hackers otherwise. So who influences the way that you work? Name an architect or CTO, CEO, tech person, whoever it may be that you look up to and tell me why. 
most of the founders that I've had on the podcast have had some impact on how I run Indie Hackers. It's funny because, you know, in a way, because Indie Hackers is all about interviewing founders and, and talking to them on the community forum, I learn a ton about how to run a company just by by running Indie Hackers. I've got kind of a unique viewpoint where I get to see examples of, of thousands of people and the different decisions they make and what works for them and what doesn't, rather than just kind of having an example of just one, which is just myself. And so I could literally go down the, the list of Indie Hackers podcast guests. I talked to John O'Nolan recently. He's the founder of Ghost. And he's like one of the most solid mission-driven founders that I've ever spoken with. He's very big on the fact that He's taking a slow, steady approach to growing his company. He's not trying to go too fast so that he can hold on to his ideals. And he's doing something he actually wants to do. So he's not going to get bored of it in a year or two. This is a lifestyle that he wants. And he's made sure to set up his lifestyle so that it's happy while he's running his business. And I think that level of patience, commitment to admission, um, while also trying to focus on growing a company is something that I really admire. And I, I try to, to make time for it in my daily life. Another podcast guest, Derek Anderson, had a quote while I was interviewing him, which is that it's you know, it's a little bit cliche, but it said it's about the journey, not the destination. And that's something that like I've thought about a lot when running Indie Hackers, that whatever I'm doing right now in this moment, that's really the whole point. And yes, if Indie Hackers gets to some sort of predefined goal of reaching this many millions of people or having this many you know, people create a product page or whatever, like that'll be great when I get there. But the entire path there needs to be fun. It needs to be enjoyable. And that affects my decision making a lot. Another founder I've had on the podcast is Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, which is an open source framework for PHP. And it's really an entire ecosystem at this point. Like he's almost single-handedly changed the ecosystem for PHP developers and been super impactful while simultaneously turning it into a business for himself. And he has a very refreshing take on motivation, which is something that a lot of founders struggle with. How do I stay motivated to finish a project that I'm working on? And for him, it's just about balance. You need to balance passion with discipline. It's not about 100% passion. It's not about 100% discipline. Sometimes you're going to be working on things and you're going to have these, you know, days that are pure drudgery and you need some degree of discipline. You need some degree where you're going to work on something, even if it isn't the most fun thing and you're going to push through it. And for that, you need discipline. And there's lots of tricks and tools you can use to sort of increase your discipline. For example, having a co-founder or employees or partners can help you stay disciplined to commitments that you've made. Telling your audience and making promises and setting due dates for things can help you sort of increase your discipline. With the podcast, I have a certain release schedule. I can't really miss that release schedule. So I have to be disciplined about that. And that helps me get through the days where I don't necessarily have the passion to push myself forward. But then there are plenty of days where I don't have to rely on discipline at all because I'm working on something that I really like and I have the passion. And I think a lot of founders and, and developers work on things that they're not passionate about and they don't get that side of the equation either. So I think it's important to have both. And that's something I think about largely in part because of, of Taylor Otwell. And I could probably go down my entire list of Indie Hackers podcast guests and say a different lesson that I've learned from a different founder every single time that I try to incorporate into how I run how I run Indie Hackers. That's a really cool thing. I totally relate to it with the interviewing you know, people on the Code Story podcast, just uh, little tidbits and hearing people's stories. Uh, it really, it's really fun and it's really cool, but it also is uh, super educational. Yeah, it's hard to learn entirely from your own experiences because you're just one person. And this is why I encourage people to to read some of the interviews we've done on the Indianapolis website or to listen to the podcast, because when you get this sort of broad perspective of talking to dozens of people or hundreds of people or listening to how they've done things, you just you just begin to realize that there's no one right way and you get to figure out which approach jives the most with your particular personality and your situation. You can even steal bits and pieces of what others have done to sort of create a game plan for yourself. And I think that's it's hard to do if you're not talking to lots of people and being a podcast founder is kind of a hack because you literally have to talk to lots of people. You don't have a choice. And so you end up getting that perspective. 
So if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? I would avoid all the mistakes that I made the first time around. I mean, I think it's funny. I've, I've asked people the same question. A lot of people say I wouldn't do anything differently. I would do it all the same, you know, and I think that answer is kind of BS because at the end of the day, like we've all made mistakes. None of us did things perfectly the first time around. And, you know, like there are features that I built for indie hackers that I would not have built. There are emails that I, I sent that I would not have sent. There are things that I stressed about. I just worried so much about them that didn't make any difference at all. I remember in November of 2016, a few months after I'd launched Indie Hackers, I was trying everything that I could to try to grow the website. I was posting on Quora and asking questions and answering questions and writing blog posts and doing all sorts of stuff and just stressing about the numbers. Like, can I get more visitors, more visitors? And I remember actually like burning out and really needing to take like a two week break because I just couldn't handle it anymore because I felt so much pressure to make the website bigger. And then in December, when I finally started reaching out to sponsors and selling you know, slots on the podcast and the newsletter, it turned out the numbers barely even mattered. And I was so stressed out about this sort of precursor first step to what I saw as being necessary to, to generate sponsorship revenue that I essentially didn't even need to do any of that in the end. It was just a total waste of time and emotional energy. And if I could go back, I would skip that. Just go straight to the part where I tried to generate revenue for my site and see if that worked. And if it worked, great. I skipped the hard step. And if it didn't work, great. Now I know for sure. And I could go do that other hard stuff. And so I think you know, it's something that a lot of founders don't realize that you should probably charge money for what you're doing as early as possible. And you'll get the exact feedback you need. When you try to charge a customer for something, if they don't buy, they'll tell you exactly why they won't buy. And you can fix that rather than just sort of guessing and stressing out over, over what you think they might need before they buy. So that's one thing that I think is was a big part of my story. And I think that is applicable to most people starting revenue generating projects as well. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to one of your indie hackers, one of the users of your platform, just built the next big thing. They're pumped to go get it up to the world. They want to show you it. Knowing all that you know, all the the different paths that you've walked and the, the, the road, the experience that you have building indie hackers, what advice would you give them? The first thing I would tell them is to be careful who you take advice from and how you interpret that advice. Everybody is different. The people giving you advice might have goals that are different than yours or skills that are different than yours or experiences that are different than yours. And so their advice might be good for a person who's not you, but it might be terrible advice for you. In fact, that's kind of the premise that Indie Hackers was built on, that if you're trying to build a business to change your life for the better and, and you know achieve financial independence for yourself, a lot of the advice that you see for startup founders is not right for you because it's geared towards people who are building these very high growth venture capitalist funded companies who are trying to acquire more users at all costs and don't really care about having a sustainable business model or running a lifestyle business. So I think you should be careful about whose advice you take and really put thought into whether or not it applies to you. And that you know includes me as well. You should consider whether or not my advice applies to you. The second thing I would say is start small. I mentioned this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but most things that are big, most things that are impressive started almost embarrassingly small. They were very modest in the beginning. And it's very important to do this because if you bite off more than you can chew as a founder in the early days, if you start working on something that's going to take you six to 12 months to build, that's going to take a ton of effort or take a ton of money, you have a lot of negative trade-offs that come with that. If you're working on something and it takes you forever to get it out the door, you're very likely to lose motivation and not finish it. If you're working on something and it's taking you forever to launch it, you're not going to have any customers. You're not going to have anyone that you're accountable to except for yourself. You're going to have to rely entirely on your own passion and willpower to get it out the door. Uh, it's just 
it's just kind of the killer of dreams when people bite off way too much in the beginning. So I would say take whatever your idea is, figure out how you can get it done in a week, like the most bare bones version of it. I've talked to so many founders who've done this and eventually built something that was world changing. A good example would be Peter Levels from Nomad List. He has a giant community of digital nomads who travel the world and help each other basically figure out the best places to stay and what to do when they're there. You know, what places have the fastest internet? What places have the cheapest cost of living or the best food, et cetera? He's got probably a better database and a community built around that than any other place online. And he started it with a spreadsheet. He didn't build a website. He didn't code anything. He literally just made a spreadsheet and tweeted it out and people filled that out. And that was sort of his first version. And the second version wasn't much more complex than that. And step by step, he got to where he wanted to go. So I would advise people to think about their business and their journey is a set of a set of steps, literally a staircase. And every tiny step you take gets you the height that you need to reach the next step a little bit easier. And that's a much better, saner approach than trying to jump straight to the top of the staircase from the floor, because you're probably not going to reach it. And even if you do, uh, it's going to take a ton of work and you're not going to get all those little dopamine hits that would come if you instead took one small step at a time to get to where you're going to go. So start small. And if you're not embarrassed by the very first thing that you release, if it's not like embarrassingly simple uh, or almost too trivial, then you might be starting a little bit too large. That's great advice. Well, Cortland, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Indie Hackers. Thank you, Noah, for, for having me on the show. And hopefully I can come back sometime again in the future. Absolutely. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Season two episodes are co-produced and edited by Bradley Denham. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>